And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Uh, we have episode number 51 today, The Younger Dryest Impact with George Howard. George is a uh, co-author of The Younger Dryest Impact Hypothesis, and he is a uh, environmental business entrepreneur. And uh, welcome, George. Hey, thanks a lot, Mike and Maurice. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Like guys that are willing to ask some of the hard questions about science and history. Oh, oh we yeah. love this shit. This is our this is our cream of the crop shit right here. But uh, why don't you uh, talk about first what the younger driest impact you know was like what you've done with the yeah. uh, the Comet Research Group and all that stuff, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, it's a twisted tale, but I won't bore you with every bit of it. It's got several different threads, but. Essentially, I have kind of an interesting posture of being probably more like you guys and some of your viewers and other people that do a lot of, uh, you know, pajama research, if you will. But I'm kind of a king pajama researcher because I got swept up with the actual credentialed scientists a long time ago, going on 20 years ago. And actually was in contact with the lead author of a very critical paper that... Um, that y'all probably come across in 2007, which set off what I refer to as the modern debate about the uh, long-standing claims that 13,000 years ago, there was a tremendous catastrophe that caused dramatic climate change in the Northern hemisphere. That's all well-documented, that part of it, and well-understood, well, won't say well-understood, but well-documented that there was a climate crash that began a period 1,200 years long much colder conditions in the northern hemisphere and probably altered conditions in the southern hemisphere, but much colder in the northern hemisphere for nearly 1,200 years. So that's been common knowledge in science and the subject of a tremendous amount of research for 50 or 60 years. Um, what came in 2007 was the startling claim made by uh, 27 co-authors, of which I was fortunate to be one of, uh, that we actually found physical evidence that indicates that a cosmic impact uh, initiated the cold period and that Earth wasn't a closed system that had some you know, freak moment within itself that caused the climate crash, but it was actually a, an impact possibly into the ice sheet, possibly involving atmospheric and also ground impacts, but of such a violent and energetic nature that it <clears throat> shut down the Gulf Stream. Amongst other things, including a nuclear winter-like atmosphere for many years that, that uh, led to a lot of varying ecological and cultural consequences, many of which are well understood, many of which are mysteries, but um, particularly the loss of all the megafauna in North America and actually over parts of the Western Hemisphere, where more than 250 species, 52 different genera of animals over 50 kilograms um, species were completely wiped out, but not in an instant. But their demise was initiated, if not, you know, uh, someone involved after some human predation initiated their ultimate uh, decline within a few decades and all those animals died. So that's a long answer. I got involved with it in 2000. I can give you more background on that, but I'll open it up for a little bit of questions if y'all delete it. But I'm just fortunate to be, a. I think I referred to you before we got on the cast, uh, Mike, is is kind of like being the ball boy for the Los Angeles Lakers or something. They let you come on the bus, you get to sit up front, 
it's just a great place for a fan to be. And I'm sure y'all can appreciate that as people that are interested in, in cutting edge science. So I'll well, I mean, I, I think you're a little bit better than a bubble. I mean, I've read your blog <laughs> and all your stuff. You've done a lot of research. I mean, there's a lot of people that claim to be more that do far less. So I wouldn't worry about that. But uh, as far as what was the catalyst that started this whole hypothesis? Like, what was the one thing that they found that, you know, started this whole speculation that other than the, you know, knowing that about the great floods and glacial dam breaks, all that stuff. No, it's an excellent question. Um, And it kind of starts it it, again, since I was involved with this so intimately, I think what I have to share is some of the kind of original progress on it because I saw it and there are plenty of good answers. It'd be very short in 2007, 23 scientists published a paper that found evidence of extraterrestrial materials at archaeological layers, but it was preceded before 2007 by uh, an interesting character named William Topping, who contacted me in 1999, and I was researching a phenomenon known as the Carolina Bays that may or may not be related to the impact. And that proposed, at least the Carolina Bay impact hypothesis of the time, proposed that they were secondary features from a tremendous cataclysm over the Midwest 13,000 years ago. And William Topping, independently, not knowing of the Carolina Bays or any of that, uh, was an archaeologist, and he discovered at a site that he was associated with in Ganey, Michigan, up where you guys are from. Sure. Ganey site, right on the edge of the ice sheet, that if you went down through the, the strata and took a damn good look, at that Clovis layer, that last layer before the Younger Dryas was initiated and the first American Paleo-Indian culture was snuffed out and all the animals were snuffed out. If you went and looked at that soil layer, microscopically, you found interesting things. Okay, so he, he contacted, a, um, he was wanting to do uh, elemental analysis on those little bits he was finding, spherules, magnetic spherules, uh, Silica it's like the micro diamonds and that kind of stuff. Or? It got the diamonds seven or eight years later, but it started with things that were visible, you know, barely visible optical microscopes. And then they quickly went to transmission electron microscopes and elemental analysis that uh, Dr. Firestone was eminently capable of doing. And I remember, I, to be frank, and I hope somebody goes and tells me a lot more about him one day as the science gets more popular. But 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 Topping was a real nut. And he was, he, he's an interesting archaeologist and was into a lot of things. And Firestone kind of grounded him. He contacted Firestone. And Firestone it was like, he was into like controversial type stuff or just? Well, it wasn't controversial yet, but it set off a controversy. Gotcha. And he was probably on the, you know, uh, psychotic spectrum a little bit, I've even heard. But I hate to accuse him of that because he had an insight, a genius insight. And that was that if you looked at those soils closely enough, you might find something. Now, that might be the start of a really kooky idea that doesn't deserve to be discovered by somebody of questionable, you know. I don't know. Some of the best geniuses are a little questionable. There you go, man. Tesla was in love with a pigeon. I mean, look at this. I was going to say that. That's right. So he contacts Topping, and he had sent me some emails on this stuff, and I think we're corresponding. But then all of a sudden, I get an email from Dr. Richard Firestone, whose address was one cyclotron drive. Jesus. Yeah, Berkeley, California. At the Lawrence Berkeley National Nuclear Laboratory. Nice. He said, Hey, I'm in touch with this guy Topping too. And we were Googling around, or at, that, at the time it had been Alta Vistine or something like that, pre Google. Right. And it said that we found a paper that you put out on the web, which I had done a year or two before, 
uh, suggesting that it was a tremendous cataclysm 13,000 years ago and it might be reflected in the Carolinas by these subtle features. And we are hypothesizing that 13,000 years ago there was a tremendous cataclysm of the Midwest. <laughs> so they kind of independently saw that there were other people, and actually more important than uh, it wasn't my hypothesis, what I was doing was sharing the work that went back to the 1930s on these features called Carolina Bays, which incidentally, I should say right now, do not play a part of the modern theory. Okay, and we can go into that in some depth, but I hope not to. Um, but it is part of my personal story, and that's what I'm sharing. So the uh, Firestone said, and, you know, we're interested in this. Will you co cooperate or do you have anything to share and whatnot? So I kind of got involved with it. And then him and Topping published a paper in 2001 in a, in a small but well-respected journal called The Mammoth Trumpet about paleo cultures. And... I was excited to see that paper. I'd been in touch with these uh, two researchers and was, you know, excited to see them actually publish something as controversial as what we had been claiming on the internet. But it had some flaws in it. And it probably went more to Robert Schock's hypothesis that there was a solar flare. And we can talk about that more if you like. Yeah, the mass, uh, the mass coronal ejection or whatever. Yeah, which unfortunately, really neat idea and probably just as shocking as the other idea that it was a uh, impact of a solid body but uh, the unfortunately for shot the evidence just doesn't support that that the the forensic evidence of, of this indicates an impact not a, a solar flare although you certainly can't rule out associated phenomena but it might make things more complicated to do so so they came out and it was actually was based on an irradiation type event etc and I think that was more toppings. That's where he was coming from. He's an isotopic scientist and a radiation scientist and whatnot. And I think that, that, that you know, that's where he went. But then in 2005, uh, those two teamed with another two great researchers, uh, Dr. Jim Kennett, who's in the National uh, Academy of Sciences uh, and is uh, actually considered the father of paleo-oceanography. Wow. Okay, and he's approaching 80 now, but was one of the first people to look back through deep ocean sediments and see changes in climate and also had, you know, just a, a wide range of, of involvement in the early theories about the younger dryas. Okay, and was on the original papers, uh, in fact, with another great scientist named Wallace Broker that determined that the younger dryas had something to do with the Gulf Stream shutting down. So that's a great guy to join what was at that time a kooky theory. So Kenneth and Dr. Alan West, a dear, dear friend of mine, who's a, a, a private uh, uh, geoscientist and had worked in oil and gas and other industries for years. Him, Firestone, and Kenneth got together and said, let's, let's revive this 2002 paper, and, or at least this investigation. They didn't know they were going to be going to a paper. And Alan had to answer your question, Mike, your original question, Alan had a great insight, you could say it's a stroke of genius, that he could go to existing well-dated archaeology, uh, archaeological sites that displayed beyond a doubt and well agreed with all scientists and all, all of the uh, people involved in those disciplines, necessary disciplines, that this site shows soil from 13,000 years ago, right? So, if, you know, because of uh, the artifacts that were there or the, sure. the uh, yeah, whatever they might be finding. It could be paleontological, it might be mammoth remains, whatnot. You know it's 13,000 years, and, and that's from carbon-14 dating, and you know it's at that time. 
and take a closer look at the soil and actually look at that soil layer under transmission electron microscopes and do other elemental probing and, and forensic investigations and see whether there's a different nature in that soil. And indeed, it was just as Topping had suggested, but it was much more abundant than even he was finding. And they found it at site after site. That came together and I was in touch with them. I was glad to see, you know, West and thrilled to see Kenneth and West get involved uh, with my two other buddies from a few years before. And then Topping kind of phased out about that time. But then it built up and culminated in 2007 with a, a series of presentations. And then later in the year, a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, but a series of presentations at the American Geophysical Union's, uh, I think it's kind of their hemispheric conference in Acapulco. So we went down to Acapulco, presented all this stuff. I had a little part on the bays uh, and other people presented on the geochemistry and, and whatnot that was found in those archeological sites and it caused quite a sensation. Uh, and, and actually there's a little golden period for about two years there as public interest was building, public awareness was building, mainstream acceptance by the media was there and we had a tiger by a tail with a great new story of earth. Uh, unfortunately, it turned the other direction and the critics came lurking out of the shadows with their clubs and beat the hell out of us, you know, in all manner of ways. And I had spent six years working in the U.S. Senate, you know, directly involved in high level U.S. politics in the most nasty fashion. And it doesn't even compare to what we saw happen with the Academy when this theory was published and they had time to get well, their scientists people. are vicious they oh, what's the what's the what's why are they poo-pooing it so bad they just yeah. don't to, they don't want to change the textbooks or yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know and we all know that old canard about changing the textbooks but boy it, it 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 embodies a whole lot of stuff it's absolutely true that, that and you can't half blame people but some at some point you know it's it's okay initial skepticism even push back and even harsh criticism, you know, if warranted, uh, is to be expected when you have a paradigm-breaking theory. But it went beyond that. And, I, you know, and I've done a couple of podcasts. I try to stay out of it because I do a lot of the pointing out those <clears throat> unfair days and to the extent that it continues uh, on my blog. And uh, there are other things we can talk about to educate your folks than how it wasn't well-received. But it's come roaring back in a lot of ways. And we're winning the day by far now. So it's been well, yeah, it wasn't the uh, recent uh, yeah. Hiawatha Greenland. Um, obviously, I don't think they've been able to date it, but there is some suggestions based on the formation on the bottom that it could be relatively newer as opposed to being a lot older. Yeah, it's almost prima facie evidence. <laughs> I mean, any glaciologist, you know, worth his salt, I would suppose, because they certainly have the greatest team in the world that found that crater. To give your listeners a little background, what Mike's referring to is um, this uh, November, uh, uh, November 2018, I think it was the 15th, there was a blockbuster paper published in Science that vindicated, potentially, a lot of what I've been talking about in those previous papers I've been discussing and helped turn the worm, if you will, on the controversy. There are a lot of examples of how it, you know, improved things and how, uh, how controversial the Younger Dryest hypothesis is within the discovery. For instance, the blockbuster paper that came out in Science and then was accompanied, it's kind of important if people want to go look at this stuff, you can go look at the original, you know, paper with citations and, you know, the formal paper, but then Science Magazine, as they do, which is the premier science platform in the world, 
accompanied it with two wonderful narrative articles explaining how it all came to be. So that was a big, big day. Uh, kind of fortunately and interestingly, I was aware of it months and months ahead of time because, like I say, I got my ear to the ground really well on this subject. And I was given a heads up uh, close to a year before the announcement that the Danes had found uh, this crater in Greenland. And again, for your listeners that might not be familiar with this obscure topic, what was discovered in November was a 20 mile wide, fresh, perfectly formed impact crater that apparently occurred within recent times geologically. Now, uh, when you take, when you go and do time bands, you know, and say, well, it's recent, what's recent geologically? Well, this one's kind of convenient. It could not be older than 3 million years old, okay? And it could be as young as 12,000 years old, but all of the indications and kind of common sense, when you look at what happened, there's only 13,000 years or 10,000 years of ice above the crater remaining. Does that make sense? Greenland yeah. is covered yeah. by roughly 110,000 years of ice. So it's like a, a cake with a bunch of layers in it. Well, those Danish scientists that found this crater, and I'll talk about the methods that they used, and NASA as well. It was a NASA and, and, and the Danish um, Natural History Museum co-effort. Um, that those, those guys are experts in that cake. They know that cake. They've been studying those 110,000 years of ice across their country's province over there, you know, uh, their entire careers. What they noticed in this place was not only was there a gigantic bowl-shaped feature larger than Paris or Washington, D.C., that was just as clear or a large impact crater as exists anywhere on Earth. It's the best example of that because it was so young. Craters erode over time. The Earth is very, very uh, uh, hard on, on those kinds of features over geological time. So that's why they're sometimes hard to spot if they're old. Uh, they knew that there was only 10,000 layers on top of it, not 110,000, right? Because something slammed in the 110 or at that time 100,000 layers, vaporized them, and there was a 20-mile bowl of molten rock for some time afterwards until it cooled off enough to start accumulating uh, ice again, as well as receiving the advance of ice that slowly moves off of the, off of the uh, Greenland ice sheet itself. So it's kind of pouring into it and also advancing on it. And literally within the science paper, it's great stuff. Any you know, non-technical non -technical person could appreciate it if they read it fairly carefully. They actually show you those layers in the ice and, and then show you how they're highly modified and only remain the only the youngest ice remains above the, the purported crater. Um, Do you think, uh, I got a question. So yeah. compared to like, let's, you know, the crater that they say wiped out the dinosaurs in the Yucatan. Yeah. Does it matter where these impacts are happening? Like if it happens in the desert, it can blow all that shit in the atmosphere, causing a long, long period of blocking out the sun, mm -hmm. transforming, you know, the planet. Would an impact this large have a similar impact um, like that in terms of blowing shit into the air? Or is it something that, um, you know, it, it melted the ice causing all like the floods that way? Or, you know, what what's the. Yeah. Now, this remember, these things are so energetic that you, you, you almost can't get your brain around it. Right. The, the target doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference, in my understanding, unless it's. Um, ocean or land 
if you've right. got a couple of miles of seawater, you're going to have a, a, a different ejective composition. But if you're on land, you're going to get some kind of basement rock that's going to explode into the air and vaporize and also remain molten in that hole, just as it would any other place on the earth is pretty much my understanding. So if it happens in the desert or it happens on ice, now ice, of course, is going to change the nature of it somewhat. There's a lot of study that needs to be done on that. Because until we proposed in 2007 that the, 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 the 13,000 year event, the Younger Dryas event, might have occurred on the ice cap. See, the finding of the Hiawatha Crater was completely in agreement with what we've been claiming for 12, 13 years. In fact, it's completely analogous, almost spookily so, with the, with the, the, the impact that you just mentioned, the Chichilub impact and the Yucatan that, that did in the dinosaurs, right? Well, that was first proposed in 1980, just as our thing was first proposed in 2000. You're saying we see physical evidence right. that, there, uh, that there was a change in the, the uh, rock strata at this time. Now, remember that's 63 million years ago. Right. Our thing's 13,000 years ago, so it's roughly 4,000 times more recent. <laughs> and the more the the Hiawatha's 20 miles, you said. How big is the, right. the, the dino- How big is the one in the Yucatan? Do you know? Yeah, like 120 something like that. Okay, so it would have been like 100 or whatever, 100 times bigger, 50 times bigger, whatever. Yeah. In terms of, does do you think that that had? Okay, so let's just say that the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. This current one, the Hiawatha one, compared to that, maybe did half as much damage or fifth, tenth, whatever you want to say. Would it still have as much of an impact? Like if the humans that yeah. were alive, um, you know, we know that there's markings, carvings, ancient cultures. We found Gobekli Tepe. There's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Maybe they were looking for high ground. Maybe they were looking for dry places, you know. But um, in terms of how much of an impact or how long do you think that that period land or that, 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 um, yeah, that time period lasted where it was bad after the impact for something the size of a Hiawatha? Yeah. Well, we know if, if the high, we know there's a 1200 year cold snap. Oh, okay. Right. And that, that's that younger driest period, which is an awkward name, but it's also kind of handy because it doesn't get confused with anything else. If you type the word younger and then D-R-Y-A-S <laughs> in the internet, you're only going to get one subject. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, that's well established. You know, there was even a, it's been popularized. Al Gore spoke of it in his presentations. And, and remember um, uh, the movie The Day After Tomorrow, right. where yeah. New York freezes over in an instant. That was an entirely sensationalized popularization of the well-established science that climate went to completely to hell. Right. Right. Within the, the, the time span of, of you know, uh, of human uh, culture, perhaps not culture. Well, that gets into another debate, but, but it was certainly witnessed by humans and endured by humans that 1200 year period. So the question is, again, that's well established. We found forensic evidence at all the archaeological sites, including a black mat layer, just like the KT boundary where the comet uh, did in the dinosaurs. Right. right. Now, that had been entombed in rock because it had been 63 million years, 64 million years, whatever it is. And this is still soil. You know, theoretically, you can have it in your backyard. Most backyards don't grade over an even pattern. Archaeologically, those are special sites. So if you went deep enough, you could find this layer? No, it could have eroded. Okay. It's not always, yeah, the landscape doesn't quite work. The cake's not always building perfectly. Gotcha. Some places where the cake is pristine. 
And if you can find an aggrading archaeological soils that you can dig back through, yeah, you're going to hit that point where interesting things happen. First, you find the last evidence of the first Paleo-Americans, first well-substantiated, well-understood, uh, very significant Paleo-Americans called the Clovis people that make right. a, a particular uh, point. Looks just like that. That's the type point for Clovis. That's not a real one. I wish I had a big one like that, but that's actually plastic. And those points proliferated through the Americas, you know, from Seattle to Miami to Tierra de Fuego within 200 years. And then they all blink out. You don't find that point anymore. And it's replaced, you know, roughly several hundred years later. It starts being replaced with the different technologies, as you call them, different approaches to point making. So something very dramatic happened to those people at that time. At that same point in history, you lose all the megaphone. Everything from your, you know, uh, giant ground sloth, your saber-toothed tiger, to the American camel, to the iconic woolly mammoths and the, the mastodons. All of that goes extinct in that same period. So when you're digging down through those soils that we're just discussing, that's the last Indian point you're going to find. And it's the last, well, it's the first Indian uh, uh, point you're going to find. And it's the last mammoth tusk you're going to find. And I've been to these sites, right? These mammoth sites? Yeah. What about, have I been to them? Yeah. Have I been to a mammoth site? Yeah, I actually have one on some land that my company owns in Texas that's undisclosed right now that I've visited nice. with, uh, with cool. very senior folks. Um, let's see, where have I actually, I have not been out to Murray Springs or what, I've done some traveling with the group. Most of my traveling actually went to the Middle East with them. That gotcha. was my mammoth search. But, uh, but no, I, I stated, uh, you might be referring, because I have a tusk. I have a very large right, right. That's why my, my blog is called The Cosmic Tusk. And that was offered to us by uh, 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 a fossil company called uh, Canada Fossils in Calgary. Calgary Fossils, I think. And it had been in a National Geographic episode that was covering the findings during that period. I said it was a nice little honeymoon. Yeah. 2007 to 2010 before the, the trolls came out. Right. Yeah. Uh, they did about, yeah, did probably eight or nine hours of international television, everything from Manova that you can find on the Cosmic Tusk that actually just put up there from YouTube. I'm sure they'll take it down any day uh, <laughs> to National Geographic Explorer and History Channel specials. There were a bunch of them. There have been a couple even since then. But I think we're going to see a resurgence in TV in the next year. Because, the so? Hiawatha, well, the Hiawatha Crater discovery was so dramatic that it's going to drive a lot of science TV itself. Now, it's going to be, you know, take, take some uh, mobilization time to get to Greenland. You know, they're going to, and I, I imagine there'll be sponsorships for further scientific activities. The one that was done up there was sponsored by Carlsberg Beer, of all things. Actually wow. paid for the Hiawatha science. Um, because it was such a, I assume, because it was such a, a radical proposal anyway that they couldn't get regular science funding. But they certainly got regular science coverage. Back to that Science Magazine article in, in November. Their paper, though, not, does not cite, you know, a big part of scientific publications is citations of other people's work that you have relied on or that might have some implications on what you're adding to the, the basket of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the younger dry impact hypothesis was tremendously relevant to what they were publishing, that they had found a crater. We have on pretty good authority, and this is third hand for me, but certainly makes sense and adds up, and there's even the science reporter who reported it suggested as much, 
that not only did the group that published the finding of the Hiawatha Crater have to endure 27 separate reviewers on that paper wow. over two and a half years. And these were extremely qualified scientists from NASA and from, you know, nation leading, you know, research institutions. They gave them that much hassle to put into science that they had found an absolutely clearly obvious crater candidate under the ice. 27, and as part of those 27 reviews, they, um, they struck every reference to our work. So they couldn't cite our 2007 paper. Gotcha. Because it's never been allowed in science. We actually publish in, in other venues, including the equally prestigious uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Right? So we never had too much of a problem not getting in science, but it is offensive. <clears throat> and now they go and publish something that vindicates us, but don't let the, the people who are writing the paper even reference us. But I'll take what I can get. Finding right. it was wonderful. And then, excuse me, if, if you will, if I may, um, those accompanying articles about the discovery, one of them was completely about how it relates to our publication. So the narrative portion, the magazine part of science, the easy reading, really gave us our due. And the author there was a guy named Paul Vusen, who I followed on Twitter and I, really seems to be a cool guy. And there seems to be a generational change happening at science. You think so? You couldn't get these catastrophic publications that suggested, you know, significant catastrophes in the past, world catastrophes, you know, just couldn't couldn't get published and uh, probably still can't. But at some point, the evidence overwhelms the, the resistance. So I've been talking a lot. What questions you got, fellas? Well, I was just going to say, hey. why, why, why do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I love science, but yeah, I think that there is some sort of. I don't even know what it is. It's just like, it's almost like a God complex on their end of things. Like I'm, I'm smart enough. I'm going to find the answer and I'm going to use the scientific method to arrive at this answer. And the thing is that gets me is they all fight with each other though. So it's like, who are we supposed to believe when they're all infighting? My, I got a better theory. This is my theory. This is my theory. Um, and then you have people like you, you know, doing, getting your hands dirty a little bit and trying to push this agenda and other people like Randall Carlson doing stuff and Graham Hancock talking about it, all this stuff. Um, why do you think that there's that much pushback just because there isn't the official merits and degrees and all that stuff? And if so, it's like, I, I, I don't, I just don't understand it. Why they wouldn't even look at it if the evidence was there. Yeah. Well, it's human nature. And I think you've got to remember what you're seeing is the, the biggest pushback comes from the biggest boneheads, right? So when we published this, it took about three years. They published a paper called uh, The Younger Dryas Hypothesis or Requiem. Yeah, requiem. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a celebration, you know, of someone's death, right. you know, or recognition of it. Just a horrible kind of thing. Okay, what causes that? I think, you know, science is driven by curiosity, but at some point, the accumulation of facts and curiosity becomes perverted in the protection and defense of the known, where they're, they're, they uh, take the posture of defending what's known rather than investigating what is unknown with a curious mind. And the people who have come out against us, and it is a little cabal, okay, and they oh, yeah. have published time and time again, and I won't bore you with the names. I can give you some of them. They're all, all you know, profiled on the Cosmic Tusk. But that same cabal, their interest seems to be defending the name, not describing what caused the younger dryas. Gotcha. They're there to tell you, 
that we know that there was no gigantic impact 13,000 years ago because science is so smart we would have found it yet. <laughs> okay, now if anyone understands the history of science, you know that there are things at any given time you're absolutely dead wrong about some stuff. Yeah, most things. Yeah, yeah. Wrong until you're right, man. Even Newton, you know, Newton and, uh, you know, all yeah, that. You're to be dead wrong about at any given time, the accumulated body of accepted knowledge is to some significant degree absolutely dead wrong. So the way I kind of, in my mental game with these, these folks, and I know they cause you frustration too, is every scientist should have at least one kooky theory he believes in. Sure. If you don't have one kooky theory going, that means that you think everything is right and there's nothing that might be anomalous that might be instructive that you need to be running down, right? They quickly become defenders of the known. And well, that's I, the vibe that I, it's like a depressing vibe I get from most yeah. scientists. Like I'm on Reddit, I get in debates, I ask questions, I, you know, I'm just trying to learn, you know, and through learning, I'm not just going to like take somebody at their word without, if I know something to be different, you know? Right. Um, so when I do that, I, they get very defensive. They get very shitty. Not all of them. There's some cool yeah. ones. We're going to have some cool ones coming up on our podcast soon. You know, there's definitely <laughs> cool scientists. Be careful, bro. Be careful. Um, but at the same time, there are there is like an agenda too, and even most scientists that are reasonable will point that out. Like, yeah, um, we do debate each other, and we, it is eating our young. You know, we eat our young, and blah 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 blah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think you're right. I think the fact that most of these um, scientists don't believe in anything metaphysical could even be a possibility. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. You hear it in their tone when they talk this is how it is and this is what it is. And it's just, you know, and once in a while you'll get somebody that's, you know, got good charisma that pushes it, you know, in that direction and stuff. But I can't listen to like a Richard Dawkins or a Lawrence Krauss. I mean, as smart as they may be and accomplished yeah. as they may be, just their, their tone alone and what they're saying is just, it's just too much for me to listen well, to. Well, the whole skeptic movement, you know, just became perverted. Yeah, and I don't know if y'all followed that. You're, I'm older than you are, but but when it started with James Randi back in the early '80s, and he would go debunk things, and particularly junk science, there was a lot to that. That was a wonderful thing, right? And it, it turned into a pathological attack of psi political enemies, <laughs> a combination sure. between politics and science, and uh, again, defense of the known at all costs. Well, you know about both. I mean, you've been involved with politics, and you've been involved I with science. Have, but it helps bring me to it. And I said that, like I said, the, the, the science is just awful. Every bit as bad as politics. But, um, but the good news is, and I've learned, listened to some of your podcasts, and you get a little morose at times, guys. <laughs> you got to stay, you know, this is a pressing <laughs> subject. So everyone is forgiven. Okay. But the good news is we're going to win this thing. All right. There's all right. No doubt in my mind. And being somebody that has watched it so closely, unlike a football game like we have tonight, you can know <laughs> enough to know who's going to win in this game. Sure. Yeah. A lot that's unstated. There's a lot that's unpublished. You've seen the way the other side has had to lie, for instance. If you know you're right about something, then you know. For instance, they, one particular guy, uh, a, a federal scientist, at, a former federal scientist at Sandia Labs, Mark Boslow, is our uh, prototypical uh, antagonist for this paradigm change. He is okay. absolutely 100% set against it. He's pulled every trick in the book to undermine us. Um, oh, hell, I forgot what I was going to say about the guy. Uh, he's just he's so evil. He's just... He's so evil. Just <laughs> I don't want to say anybody's evil, I'm sure. No, 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 no. He's my wallet, you know? 
but uh, but I wouldn't trust him with you know the intellectual uh, future of these disciplines that our theory uh, uh, reflects because it is multidisciplinary. And oh, talking about how you know what, what, what's going to come, the thing has been so predictive. To have them find the Hiawatha crater again, we we included in the original hypothesis, and I say we loosely. I do not speak for the group, and I should have said that right off the bat. No one truly speaks. I would say those lead authors could, and I would certainly, you know, respect them speaking for me anytime. But the the ball boy doesn't speak for the Lakers, right? Sure. Okay. So yeah, and and that gives me a lot of intellectual freedom. If I had to speak with them, I couldn't go on and talk about to speak for them about Graham Hancock and whatnot, who those folks have no interest in whatsoever. Right. Some do, most don't. Okay. And that's kind of an important part of this whole thing. We should probably delve into that. That. This is one of the, it's a great kooky theory, and I'm glad that you guys are picking up on it. By kooky theory, I mean that lighthearted. You know, sure. It's supposed to be, yeah, out of the mainstream. But it's the best one. You're on the safest ground that there is. It has the highest consequence with the most truth and the most illegitimate pushback that if you take that formula, it's the best gig out there. Sure. Right. And that, that's the overdrive impact hypothesis. Somebody finally came up with one that shakes it to the bone, proves Plato, suggests perhaps that the Atlanta stories could be true. You at least got your catastrophe down. You know, it makes you, you have got to look back at precursor civilizations again, or at least take it more seriously than it has been to date. It opens up a Pandora's box that nobody wants to open up. Now, can it keep it open? A lot of theories can't keep the box open. You know, it shuts back, it goes in and out. You're not publishing regularly. Remember, this stuff is going to the major journals in the world. You don't see a whole lot of Bigfoot papers in major journals. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I'll give you a good little analogy. Bigfoot's like the one thing for me. I could, yeah. I like to believe things if there is something there, you know? Bigfoot's yeah. like the one thing I haven't been able to find. Maybe it's, I've had a theory, we've talked about this, that maybe, and I've heard other people talk about this though too, um, maybe it's ingrained in our DNA, like seeing this Gigantopithecus a long time ago, and it's just this flash. Yeah, you have a primordial fear of the Yeah, some, something, just yeah. like how I you know, think about like an alien could be us in the future, yeah. you know, like that could be us evolved and so we're I'll just seeing some sort of, you know. And for whatever reason, they were all extinct. We would still have the snake fear embedded in us because that's embedded in people. Yeah, that's you know, little kids. For some reason, there's some thing about little kids being scared of snakes. It's pretty that's interesting. Right. So, um, yeah, where do you want to head with it, fellas? So the no, I was just I like I said, I, the bigfoot okay. thing was like the one thing I can't, you know. Yeah. Well, it's just rich. You know, it's fun to when you research this hypothesis. It can take you all the way into some of the craziest claims of all time. And it can take you all the way to Science Magazine in November of 2018. Sure. That's, yeah. you know, that's a rich, rich subject, and it's only going to get better because that crater ain't going anywhere. It's not like some fast radio burst that you can't go check again. Do they have a... You know, a, it's, not they a, have a it's sitting up there, and it ain't going anywhere. Do they have an agenda to, or something on the, the docket to go do more research on this or is there what's going on with excellent that? Excellent question. No, I think it, it's, it's absolutely obvious that there is going to be further research. You know, this was a, a huge, huge discovery. Everyone, you know, indicated that there are ways to, to test and to narrow the dates, you know, with, with great precision. But of course it's in Greenland. It's under a mile of ice. Sure. You got you to dig through it. 
So yeah. they'll be there is clearly prep for that going on. I say clearly because it would just be too weird if there wasn't. Okay. But it's all secret right now. You know, they're, they're in grant application processes. I know no details, but they are working to gather the funding and the technical support to get back up there and test it again. It wouldn't surprise me at all if you didn't get some media funding too. It's now, a good story that you get Nat Geo up there, maybe picking up some chopper bills, you know? What would be the the techniques? Do you know anything? Like, would they do like core sampling or somehow drill down like a small they cylinder? Try to get the reconstituted molten rock, right? Okay. And then date it radiometrically. Gotcha. And you can see that that, you know, like if you go see that basalts, you know, came from a volcano and that rock reformed itself three billion years ago or whatnot. Apparently they can do the same thing as long as you had rock turned back into. That's one approach. Okay. There's also members of our team. I don't think I'm disclosing anything improper here, but I did hear some stuff I hadn't seen on the Internet that members of our team had suggested that apparently within the ice itself, the Greenland um, the constituents of the, the Greenland ice sheet um, is a, is a, 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 a plankton record. Mm. Okay. Cause you're constantly have winds blowing in diatoms and plankton and, you know, microscopic creatures, creatures from the sea, et cetera. And you can find that. You can also, these days you can date that stuff. So you would go down and find the very first living thing that occurred in the ice above Damn. it. Wow. Right. And at least then, maybe that ends up, maybe it's 5,000 years of it being a smoking crater and nothing's left, and the first thing pops up 6,000 years ago. You would know the youngest, as long as you didn't find anything 110,000 years old, you knew that that was all fresh stuff. Right. Right. So that's a old-fashioned carbon-14 dating. You can also, you know, there maybe they could use what you call optically stimulated luminescence, OSL dating which can show you a given sand grain or a grain of quartz the last time it was exposed to the sun. Those kind of techniques can be employed. Interestingly enough, uh, again, Carlsberg, what is it? Carlsberg? Yeah, Carlsberg Beer funded the, the right. trip they did. They had the telemetry. The way they found this thing is the Greenland ice sheet is very well studied. Even the scientists, usually you don't find a lot of scientists that will say, they don't say we have all the funding we need, but these guys seem to say, We've really been on this for a long time. They've been flying radar over that thing for 20 years. Wow. The, the, they're bouncing radar waves off of the bedrock, right? Sure. So I think three or four years ago when they got some of the latest equipment, they revealed to the world uh, a map of the <clears throat> um, pre-ice sheet Greenland that had big canyons in it like the Grand Canyon and river valleys and all of that has been revealed beneath the ice. But that same radar beam that can give you accurate topography of the subsurface rock can also provide you the constituents of the sheet. You can actually see the layers of the kick. So gotcha. you're getting the bottom and you're getting the, lay the year layers. And within that, you can actually see the younger dryas. So this is a good way to actually should have said it earlier when I explained in the cake thing. But they can tell where the... The, the 110,000 years of ice, 13,000 years ago, it changes dramatically 13,000 years ago. And you see that all across Greenland. Well, you get to this crater and you don't see it anymore because it is the change. Gotcha. Yeah. Right? That was the thing that caused the, pea, the, the slice everywhere else in the kick. Right. Yeah. 
So that that's again, that's all stuff. And you can see what happened. So they come back with this data. And they explain it in great dramatic fashion. And there are a couple of great videos that NASA itself did explaining this that even referenced the younger dry dry impact hypothesis, which was just unthinkable a couple of years ago, seeing the mainstream gather on this. Uh, so they show the videos and dr dr dramatize the scientists coming back with some of the first, you know, passes over this area and going, good God, there's a remarkable feature under the ice. This is like nowhere else in Greenland. We don't see that this is a perfectly shaped bowl. And strangely enough, and again, this is well dramatized, even recreated for some of these things. The announcement videos had recreations in them. But at the Danish Museum of Natural Science, where the Danes the, that are working on this are, um, work, right. they have a large iron meteorite in their courtyard that came from Greenland. Wow. So they were sitting there thinking, well, could it be an impact in Greenland? And they look out in their courtyard, and there's a gigantic yeah. five tons of iron that came <laughs> from Greenland. Well, yeah, it can happen, you know? Um, it's a lot of good evidence. Where's all this evidence against this stuff? Oh, you know, I'll tell you, one of the, the most painful ones was in 2010. You know, we had a, there's a certain, along with seeing magnetic grains, you know, that have some kind of uh, 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 metal in them, obviously yeah. iron content, and silicate grains. And then we're talking very, very small, several nanometers, and then some, some a little bit bigger. These things that have been melted and requenched bedrock, right? That's what you find. It's a vapor that's blasted up out of the hole, and that vapor falls down and has fallen all across North America and well into Europe and all our sites extended the Europe and all the way. The furthest one is in Syria, and a new paper is coming soon. Probably shouldn't say anything, but uh, finding all this stuff in South America too. Okay, uh, you find these reconstituted rock vapor. Of various types. You also find these interesting little carbonate spherules called carbon spherules. Okay. Okay. And you were saying what what would people come out against you? One of the first papers that yeah probably had a huge effect in other scientists' understanding because they didn't go look any deeper. They came out and said that all the little carbon spherules that we we're looking at were all bug poop. What species? Yeah. yeah. Like dinosaur bugs. bugs or, or? Uh, just that, you know, that, that, that it's bug crap from the past of 13,000 years ago. And the, the now, yeah, there is bug crap and there are these little uh, spores <laughs> and whatnot and, and crap. And one of the other things is a carbonaceous whatchamadoogies. And that is true. But not if you look at it through a transmission electron microscope. You can get past that. When you're at that level in the investigation, when our team reported that, they had been looking at those with some of the most powerful instruments in the world. The other team went and took optical microscope pictures of bug poop and said, hey, this looks like that. So what? Yeah. Right, right. These things have been, you know, investigated with elemental probes, you know, the highest technical specifications. We were past the bug poop stage. But they right. come at you with stuff like that. And, oh, you didn't find diamonds. You know, we had a diamond expert go and look. You know, uh, uh, or iridium, for instance. Uh, iridium, it's a tough one because you find it in, in grains. You can't always find it. Not every bit of the sediment is going to show the iridium. You've got nuggets that have it. Now, where they saw where we later kind of put it to bed, I mean, the thing's going very, very well now. We're not getting a lot of pushback. It's now just how do you get it totally mainstream? And the crater is going to do that if it does date to the proper date. Um, but um, 
I lost my train of thought there. It's just kind of scary because it's, you know, these people are trying to deprive people of uh, good information. You know, it's fucked up. Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, it's it, it just shows kind of the uh, one of the darker sides of human nature. Yeah. And I think there are a number of subjects that, you know, reflect the same kind of thing that are that fall in that category for me personally is having unbelievable published foundational support, but can't haven't made it over the hump yet. Sure. Right. And my, my category is just for the hell of it to put it on the record. Obviously the younger grass impact of that been involved with it for 20 years. Right. Uh, but also panspermia as sure. defined by Chandra Wickham with Singh, you know, and Fred Hoyle <laughs> clearly published for years. Some of the greatest scientists in the world. You know, and, and it, it, it increasingly has the back, backing it needs to become the paradigm. But the shift is so great to go from saying, which is the most ridiculous presumption since heliocentric, you know, or Earth-centric solar system, that all life came from here and that we invented it on our little planet. Right. And it's a sterile, you know, sterile outside unless we find something exotic, you know, under... Well, yeah, Carl Sagan was a huge proponent of directed panspermia and panspermia until later yeah. in his career and something yeah, happened. Academia got a hold of him. Yeah, so. maybe that was it. But um, and then the other thing too is I recently saw something. I forget. It might have actually been on Ancient Aliens, but it was a, an experiment they did with a weather balloon where they took it up to the tip of the atmosphere where it touches That's space, right. and they yeah, and they collected the the particles and they found the building blocks of life. Um, are being like rained down on our planet, basically. Now, is it proven? I don't know. The tardigrade. If you looked up tardigrade. Oh yeah, the little yeah, water bears. Popular five years ago, no one knew what the hell that is, and see, you start to see under those little bugs, those little water bears exist throughout the galaxy. Uh -huh. They are the aliens. Evolve <laughs> some creature that could survive radiation in space. It doesn't need to. You yeah. know, I wonder if uh, that octopus study can. Uh, there you go. I, that day, buddy. I remember seeing it come out, and I thought that's crazy. That, you know, absolutely. As crazy as it sounds, there's a world of octopuses out there, and their DNA is floating around because they got hit by an asteroid. And at some point, that stuff gets mixed in, and we've probably got creatures from all over the world whose DNA has been the world all, all over, over the, the universe. Octopus could have yeah, yeah, came from a comet impact. But that's a big lift, dude. I mean, again, that's like moving the damn Earth to the out, you know, outside of the center. Yeah. In, in very analogous fashion, but you're moving our, you know, our hubris that somehow all this bizarre stuff managed to evolve right here from a hot pool of stuff beside a volcano. Like, I mean, give me a break. Yeah. So that's number two. You got younger dry and pan spermia. Just give me my big four. Um youth. That David Sinclair at Harvard has licked it. That's a good one. Because at Harvard, number one damn longevity researcher in the world in the nic nicotinamide and, uh, you know, uh, NDA. So uh, it's a youth molecule that he's been on for five years now. Yeah. Oh, he's got resveratrol from red wine. All that stuff's true. My wife and I are taking it now. I'm a believer. I think they have found the youth pill. But it's funny. You're not going to know somebody's found the youth pill because how do you know the next day? Right. It doesn't make you any younger. It just keeps you from aging. So you kind of got to wait till all these people taking it look young. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not going to be one day that discover the youth bill. So if he has it, 
it would make sense that it wouldn't be accepted right away because you got to go through all the FDA stuff and whatnot, and it's sold on Amazon. And well, he it's funny. Yeah. I was, was going to say, it's funny too, because you got a scientist like Brian Cox, who was just on Rogan, and they asked him about that octopus investigation. Yeah. And he immediately said, no, their DNA is just like ours. And it's just wiped away. And Oh, I missed that. Funny. He was talking about it as if he was a biologist that yeah. was debunking, you know, like, does he know that much about biology? I don't know. Maybe he does. He's a smart guy, but I mean, who fucking knows? Well, you know, our wonderful friend Joe Rogan, you know, is is tuned into so many things and has such a great open mind. Well, he had Sinclair, the guy I just referenced at Harvard. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I believe that's true. And that's pretty damn mainstream, but it's just not over the hump yet. Yeah. Right. Finally, you know, take you to the X-Files. I'm an absolute believer in uh, the reality of low energy nuclear reactions and cold fusion. That I think those guys in 1989 got the rawest deal of the kind of raw deals we're discussing. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, you're younger guys, but you know, in 1989, there was a worldwide, you know, front cover of every magazine, lead of every TV, on, you know, uh, uh, cover of every paper that they had gotten more energy out of a particular electrochemical process than they put in. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of like what people think zero point energy is and like what to the stars Academy is trying to do and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm unaware yeah, of what you're talking about. Perpetual motion machine or, or uh, too much woo. Yeah. But, yeah. Go look that one. I was called Pons and Fleischmann where the, uh, it's well, what do you think about that? Cause you, you, you were part of, uh, the government, the government, Harry Reid, the a tip twenty two million dollars over seven years. Now Harry Reid's coming back saying, "Let's get more money. Let's do more research on this." Those videos that came out that I mean, I I don't yeah. know how to, what to think otherwise. But I mean, what do you think about at least I, aliens? Forget about aliens, but just UFOs. You know, I tell you, it worked with me. That big splash they did in twenty seventeen. You know, yeah. With yeah. and all of that. I had to go read her book. I had to go look at UFOs again. I hadn't looked at them in 25 years. I left, <laughs> maybe longer. I think I left UFOs right around Jaws 3. Okay. Yeah, you know, like about 1979. Yeah. All right. When I was a kid, like anybody that's interested in anomalous stuff and mysteries like we all are, you know, right. of, our, of our type, absolutely fascinated. Bought every UFO book there's out there, but slowly just got away from it where I just, if I didn't have a belief, I certainly had no interest. Yeah. Okay. But they put it back on the table for me. Yeah, well, twenty-two million is just so pitifully small. Though. Well, I there's mean, a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of questions, right? Consciousness. Yeah. You know, what's consciousness? They can't even tell us what that is. Science. Science wants to go to the furthest reaches and figure out what happened first, the Big Bang or whatever. But they're not even. And and that should be looked at, by the way. I'm not saying that that shouldn't yeah. be. But I don't think that there's enough research going on of what's actually happening within our own brains. You know, like what is consciousness? We've interviewed many people. That have taken. I don't know if you're familiar with DMT yeah, or dimethyltryptamine. No, all all, man. I'm a good friend of Graham Hancock's, buddy. <laughs> okay, yeah, yes, yeah, I forgot. Uh, but yeah, so that's. Uh, I mean, and we've in our own experiences, I've experienced some pretty crazy shit myself on psychedelics. Oh, but you know, well, I know. Excuse me to interrupt, but I gotta ask because I listened to a couple of y'all's. Um, uh, uh, my buddy R. N. Boot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm riding my bike today. Yeah. Love RN. I've been his buddy on Twitter for a couple of years. We're trading stuff, and I'd like to talk about his theories a little bit. Yeah, but, Spirit um, in the Sky. Yeah, we, he's one of our top top have, guys. Have you experienced DMT? I couldn't. I didn't want to. Uh, we have never done. I've done everything. No. 
else. Yeah, we've all done mushrooms. Yeah, I get Well, that. I don't know. I mean, I've done, <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. done, you well, know, like yeah, I when I was it. younger, LSD, mescaline, you know, like all yeah. that stuff. Um, so I'm very aware so of. Out there waiting on that first DMT trip, you know, not going out of your way to go get it. Oh, we're filming it live. Yeah. That's exactly though. That's exactly what it is. What I feel about it is this. It's an, it's obviously an endogenous chemical. We all have it within us. Um, that being said, I'm not going to go out of my way to find it. If it finds me and that's the time right. time's right, you know, same thing happened with all the other psychedelics I've done, you know, oh, it have to be the time is right. I'm not going to do it and grab a fire extinguisher at the frat house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were both musicians too. Like for a, a yeah. long time, I experimented stuff when I'd write music and, yeah, record stuff. Rave, you know, yeah. and, well, and we're big, we're big fish and deadheads too. So we're very, Went to a fish show in Raleigh, first one I went to this year, and man, it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> just sick, bro. Show. I was fired up, you know, but I came out of that thing. I said, wow, man, I get it now. <laughs> it's a good time. Good energy. Yeah. yeah they, even in their old age, they still, they're better than anybody else their age, I think. If you look I at like would, old X, I you would, know? I would. Yeah. 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 I thought it was going to be, you know, dead minus, and it was dead plus. Well, we were never old enough to see the dead. I'm 34. I'm more we like yeah. seven. Yeah, if we were younger. Maybe the last show at uh, Soldier Field or something in 95. But uh, we're huge. I mean, I'm a huge dead fan. Maurice is a huge dead fan. But we're just... Uh, Fish was the thing that stuck because we could actually go see them and then experience them in their full mm -hmm. fury. But uh, yeah, so... But yeah, back to the consciousness stuff. Um yeah, I mean, I've I've experienced enough synchronicities and things to I don't necessarily believe one thing or another, but I do believe that there's something more to all of this. I don't believe that that we're just aimlessly evolving like uh, Richard Dawkins says, where there's no point to anything and we live in a dumb universe and that's just it. Like I don't subscribe to that, but I mean, everybody's welcome to have their own opinions, obviously. Yeah, well, the engineering of consciousness apparently has some hidden keys out there. And if somebody had to hide the key, sure. You know, and DMT is certainly one of those keys. Again, I speak from a, someone who hasn't done it and may never do it, but you could, there's a lot going on there. And what I wanted to communicate to RN, and I owe him an email. He actually messaged me because I was going to send him something. And he just circled back to me after a couple of months and said, You never sent it. And, um, but I went on a, a very interesting, whole nother thread, but uh, archaeological dig two years in a row in the Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea. Okay. The, of the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side. And it was, uh, it's the increasingly well established uh, location of Sodom. Oh, right? wow. Tel Al Hamam. And Tel Al Hamam is a cultural tell or tall. So they call them in Jordan, um, that has experienced 5,000 years of civilization of one sort or another, with the exception of a 700-year period marked by an ash boundary where it was completely abandoned. Okay? And tell well, all, do they have a rough uh, dating on that of the year that you're talking yeah, about? it's about uh, 3,700, uh, well, excuse me, 4,700 years ago, 2,700. Okay. It's at the uh, Middle Bronze Age, early Middle Bronze. So it would have been like by dynastic egypt um it, it would have it would have predated uh well <laughs> it was old old testament times clearly sure sure it sure reported in said old testament right so, so you, you think that's the the sodom and gomorrah site huh 
Oh man, there is great evidence on it, and that's easy to Google. Any all the modern information on Sodom and Gomorrah now, and they're they're out filming the dig this year. In fact, it's underway right now. Uh, I hadn't been in two years, but I uh, went three weeks and then two weeks. I had some good good experience there, and I was there collecting samples for the younger Dryas research team because the archaeologists working to find Sodom became aware of their forensic capabilities. And then Bull Boy went over there just to grab some samples. They can take the right? Grab them and run, baby. You gotta yeah, get a jack. You gotta get a jacket that just says Ball Boy on yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> man. So uh so I went over there and gathered samples and all that's found a, a huge uh, spike in platinum, just like you find at the younger drive. So it could have been a Taurid object too, and we can talk about the Taurids as you like. But yeah. where we're headed with that, uh oh, the, the consciousness part of it that when you find the sterile layer that the place is completely abandoned for 700 years, it is repopulated. It, the, this archaeological site, this tall as it was, first of all, in its heyday, and no one had found it till our leader, the director of the dig, Stephen Collins, found it by kind of reverse engineering the genesis. And it was... 10 times larger than its mirror city on the other side of the Jordan, which is Jericho. You okay. can see Jericho all day when you're digging. You look out and it's six miles to the Jordan, and then six miles on the other side is the mirror city. And then both of those talls, so it was Jericho and Sodom, and both sat at the bottom of the hill down in the, the Great Rift, you know, where the Dead Sea is 1,000 feet lower than the surrounding landscape, with the city on the hill was Jerusalem for Jericho, and Amman for Sodom. Gotcha. Okay, but I'm getting a little off track. But, but in its day, our site was 10 times larger than Jericho, the oldest city in the world, and 100 times larger than Jerusalem. So it was an absolutely dominant force there at Tel Amman. Wow. Then it goes away for 700 years, and it has the best second act of any archaeological site in the world. And no one even really talked about it on the dig. I was always always in this part. <laughs> is that it's well accepted that that small area of the Jordan Valley was the last campsite of the Israelites before they sent the raiding party into Jericho. Wow. So they came all the way through the wilderness and the 40 years and all that, and that was the last spot. And obviously, it's on the toll. The, the area there, which isn't three miles by three miles, is known by known, and this is where it gets to the RN Voot stuff and DMT, is known as the Field of Acacias. Yes. Gotcha. It yes. El Shatim. That area is known as El Shatim. And then the centerpiece of El Shatim is this hill that you can look up, tell a mom, I might do a screen share with you. It's obvious as hell. It's all culturally built up. There's no structures left at all. It's just a pile of dirt. You dig through the dirt. And, Find the old stuff. So it goes, it, 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 it was sterile for 700 years, then repopulated by Moses. The Ark of the Covenant, if it existed, definitely sat on the hill, right? And, but the name, which I've never seen in any of Voot stuff or the spirit molecule or any of that, the name of that area is the Field of Acacias. So when he received Deuteronomy, which supposedly happened in the Field of Acacias, right. when he went up and died, you know, went, went up to the sure. promised land and they got the 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 uh mosque for gosh sakes the um the, Philip or the church or whatever you know yeah. is the promised land you know it's right there on mount nebo is over right. the when you're digging i'm going on too long but uh but he was operating from a place that has been known for 
3,000 years is the field of acacias. And of course, acacia is from what's, you know, is where you can derive DMT. Right. Uh, yeah, the Middle East is rich with DM or acacia. Acacia, I think, has 2% DMT. Um, I know. Uh, yeah, but I know you're not, you couldn't just, you couldn't just throw it on a fire and inhale it or smoke it or whatever. You would have to extract it. So, like, I've listened to Hamilton Morris and Joe Rogan talk about this, where Hamilton Morris is like a chemist. I don't, he's got a show called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. It's, it's actually a really good show where he breaks down all these yeah. chemicals and synthesizes them. Um, but he was talking about how it would have to be, you know, extracted you couldn't you couldn't trip off that amount of it so and i've heard y'all talk about that on your show as well but presumably that was not beyond the no yeah yeah no they yeah. What, what would yeah like to extract it it's actually not from what i understand i've never done it but from what i understand it's not that complicated of a process yeah. so is it out of the realm of possibility oh absolutely not i think though um yeah, you're right, though. I mean, that area, even Egypt's rich with acacia. I know they're more of the blue lotus, but, um, you know, that whole area over there has got tons and tons of acacia. Same thing with Australia. Australia's got a lot of acacia, too. Yeah. Um, but, I yeah, I mean, it, you know, but the thing is, is mushrooms are everywhere, too. So it could have been mushrooms, you know. There's a, there's a mural, a fresco um, from the Middle East. I think it's like eight, yeah. seven, one of the earliest ones, like 7,000. BC, I believe, or no, seven thousand years. So, the, like, I think like four or five thousand BC, they found where there's uh, mushrooms on it. So, obviously, they were picking mushroom, psychedelic mushrooms, and, and they know it's a psilocybe mushroom. So, um, well, you know. just without a question, do you know that those substances and those molecules had an effect on those people's spirit life? Oh, absolutely. And they, we, you know, they, they were talking to the gods. Fire extinguishers yeah. either. They were probably taking it all in and, and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, commune yeah. with nature, you know, yeah. running around like you guys do and spinning records and stuff, you know? I mean, <laughs> imagine, imagine not knowing what the mushroom does and eating like a pound of them. You would have yeah. the most yeah. intense. Yeah. Yeah. You know. come up with a religion by the time you were done. Now, whether it catches <laughs> up is another matter, but you can come right. up right. with a, a, a religion. It's like an ancient rave. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go probably very much was like that in my opinion. So yeah, um, I'll just re-note just for the record, you know, my last, you know, speculative uh, of the four things that, that lunar energy nuclear fusion guys. Oh so yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. We, we got away from, yeah, I want to hear what that is. I'm do a dig on that because I think the day is coming very quickly that things are going to change dramatically in that regard, that there's going to be unlimited energy. And I normally would not say that, but I feel so confident in it um, that, that, that that I would say it, and it perhaps it undermines my credibility on some of the other stuff I'm talking about. But I, I come at it from a sociological perspective that you can see some of these paradigm changes. You can go find the actors and say, you can tell this is a setup. Right. You are on to something, and it's a sociological pushback, not an evidence-based pushback. Right. right. And, and that happens in all four of those fields, from my opinion. Those are the best examples where, nah, that was clearly a setup. The two guys who did the, the, had the set of experiments and announced it to the world, you know, the president appointed a panel, Department of Energy panel, went out and, and got uh, four labs to come back do a, to try to reproduce the experiment and report back to President Bush one. So everybody in the world was waiting on that thing, came back six months later, it was the, uh, and they said, nope, didn't work. Didn't work. Mm -mm. And Tesla knew some shit. You know, well, well, who did they appoint to do it? You know, there's not a conspiracy here. It's all just human nature. 
It was the hot fusion labs. The people <laughs> out with the yeah. billion-dollar Rube Goldberg machines that have the absolute most to lose. Right. If the tabletop apparatus works. And it ended up, the implementation of that experiment, much like, it actually has a lot of similarities with the Younger Dryas thing. The panspermia thing's intimately related with it and even shares some authors. But just from a sociological perspective, the cold fusion thing uh, has a lot related. And it's particularly that, and it sounds a little, you know, picky, but the first people to go reproduce your astonishing results, if they aren't completely open-minded or God forbid, which is generally the case and was with cold fusion and us, the results are attempted to be reproduced by people who are out and out could care less about it, you know, that are right. about, you know, like negative confirmation bias. You know, you have confirmation bias, you can have the opposite where you come in and you don't believe anything you see. And they don't follow the protocols and don't contact the scientists. See if the people who tried to reproduce cold fusion had been in proper touch with those first guys and had taken their time and given it several iterations and worked on it some, they'd have gotten the results that the rest of the world's been getting since then to an increasing degree. It's gotcha. up to 100%. Now they can make these things run. They run one at MIT. One of the things that shot it down, they run a cold fusion apparatus there every year. One, one particular professor does. But So you got those guys, but they didn't have any interest in seeing the experiment succeed. It doesn't mean they necessarily sank it deliberately, but you've got to have a dedication, even when right. you're trying to reproduce these things, to really run it down. The same thing happened to us. They went and looked for the diamonds, the nano diamonds, the, the uh, magnetic spherules, you know, and whatnot, and came back and either said, we misinterpreted, we found it, but these guys misinterpreted it, and here's why. Or they said, we didn't find it at all. And that one was tremendously damaging. And it ends up that the guy never size sorted down the next level that he needed to to get down to the, the mm. 10 nanometer stuff. He was searching through a, 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 a container full of basketballs for marbles. Yeah. You've gotcha. got to screen out every basketball, right? It was that simple. And I actually confronted the guy about it at a conference in 2010 out in Wyoming, one of the last we went to uh, because we got so frustrated by him, or the lead scientists do. Again, I don't mean to speak for him. But, but the, the fellow, uh, Todd Sorbo, who had done the work, it seems to be a perfectly nice guy, but it would undermine his whole young career if we were right. He admitted that he didn't size sort. And he's never gone back and done it again and done it properly. He's let it just stand out there. He still him. sticks to his opinion, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have time to go do it. And right, he'll, right, right. Listen, I disagree that. I looked at it once, and I don't know what he'd say right now if he got interviewed on it, because there's been so much additional evidence. He's probably having a hard time sticking to his guns over a beer with his fellow, you know. This thing is being increasingly mainstreamed behind the doors of academia. We're right. winning on the thing. They're reading the papers. They know we got it. It's going to end up back on TV. That's going to get the public, and it'll turn within the next five years. And will people will understand that the past of, you know, the the, the younger driest uh, impact events, kind of the Rosetta Stone of Earth and human history. Hell yeah. It's going to be able yeah. to lock, unlock a whole bunch of other stuff, and it's going to be fun as hell. And there are going to be implications of it that are gotten wrong and dead ends you run down. But it's going to open up all that stuff. And that's all, I think, coming easily within five years and probably because of Hiawatha within two years. So what's the connection? I know that there's something with uh, we're not far from where we're from, Saginaw Bay, is it? Yeah, um, yeah thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, 
So what's the deal with that? Is there, there's a they found something underwater? Or? Yeah, that's another thing you can find at the Cosmic Tusk, and it's okay. got a little bit of background related to the Carolina Bays, which I, I say. Yeah, we're we're gonna throw your website up on the information too, Good. so people check it out. Cosmic Add Tusk. It to your favorite okay. links on your webpage too. Okay. Um. Yeah. So some of the non-credentialed scientists, but very smart people who were intensely interested in the arrangement of Carolina Bays and how they might be secondary impact features, but not primary. In other words, no one has proposed since the 1930s, although we're constantly accused of it, um, of believing that the bays were a place something slammed into the ground from space. No, there's never been a meteorite found in them. There's been you know, some of the nano-diamond type stuff, but that could have been just fallout anyway. But nothing directly slammed in it. They came in you know, from space, if you will. Right. Okay. What they are to this group who are still interested in trying to run this down in alternative explanations that there's secondary impact features from something that happened elsewhere. In other words, there was a tremendous impact elsewhere and it splayed out a bunch of material that later showed itself as these shallow elliptical basins all along uh, Eastern North America. Those shallow basins are oriented in a clockwork fashion. So the further you go up the East Coast, the more westerly they point, and the further you go down the East Coast, the more northerly they point. So is this from like an asteroid or a comet possibly breaking apart in our atmosphere as it's coming down or? No, that's been proposed, but as it's gotten refined and perhaps it's all, you know, incorrect and, a, you know, a folly is that when you follow those, um, that it would have been something slammed into the ground and cast the ice that existed there into the atmosphere, if shallow okay. atmosphere, and it lands 800 miles later in North Carolina. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's like um, the stuff that's getting shot out, like the big pieces, not blood the particles. Okay. Yeah, blood spatter pattern. I gotcha. Secondary thing. You're not the bullet, but you're the you're the blood. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Um, and again, I hate to get wrapped up in it because it, it it causes nothing but trouble for the younger dry impact hypothesis because this stuff <laughs> is largely speculative, if not entirely yeah. speculative, right? But it's connected to the YD, and it was originally in some of our early papers. The evidence is so poor that this happened, even though it's intriguing, particularly to me and these guys who are still working on it. Um, but it was put aside because it just didn't help. I call it the kooky caboose of our theory. Mm. It just rocks along attached to us, you know, uh, constantly an embarrassment. Right. And I kind of reside there, unfortunately. If they ever have to cut off the kooky, they have cut off the kooky cruise. They want nothing to do with the base. And I've kind of got one hand in it and one hand trying to stay with the big guys, you know. Yeah. Still stuck with the kooky theory, which I think has some unexplained parts to it. And I, I remain curious. Have they ever examined the, any physical, like, have they actually gone and, like, taken samples or done any of that? Yeah, or? for 70 years. Yeah. It's unbelievable pile of papers this tall on it. Okay. That died off in recent years. The most recent one was more speculation based on math that each of the bays actually represents a conic section passed through the Earth. Without getting too wrapped in there, to get to your original question, if you follow the ballistic trajectory back from where such a thing would have happened to show where the bays are all the way from Nebraska to the to New Jersey, most concentrated in the Carolinas. If you follow that back and back out the rotation of the earth and do all the you know really complex math in it, you end up at Saginaw Bay. Okay, and Saginaw Bay is what makes the thumb of your state of Michigan. Right. Right? That's a very unique, distinctive feature that looks a little bit like an impact crater. 
Okay. So they thought that something happened there. Now, the interesting thing, just like Hiawatha, or to some degree, depends, you know, might depend on how much is ice is there, exactly what the impactors made out of, you know, if this was a disintegrating comet, when you talk about that, you can have some parts that might be iron and more solid, and there might be some parts that are more friable and loose, okay? But something slams into two miles of ice, maybe it doesn't make a traditional impact crater below the ice. Maybe it just gouges it out like Saginaw Bay looks. Gotcha. Right? So these guys kind of thought that. Here's what happened recently, that it's a big planet out there, and the Internet's a wonderful thing, because there are always people, if you got a kooky idea and there's something to it, somebody might actually <laughs> prove it. Yeah, jumping on board, baby. Yeah, using technical equipment. And a bunch of, I mean, I can't even pronounce the guy's names, you know, genius scientists in Czechoslovakia who are absolute experts on gravity anomalies took some of the latest gravity equipment in the world and did a treatment on Saginaw Bay. These guys had already applied it and been published multiple times doing it at known impact craters around the world. And the gravity anomalies showed distinct, almost target-like patterns, if you will, above well-known craters around the world that are completely accepted. So they had already proved this is a cool thing to go see. It helps confirm craters. It might tell us more about the craters that we already accept. But gravity anomalies are a part of it. So they went, these guys went and took a look at Saginaw Bay, and boom, it looks like a damn target. It looks like a, an archery target. Not quite that good. The whole bay, or, or like, is it, is oh, there any land? Is there hundreds of miles into Michigan? Oh, okay. It's something incredibly energetic, you know. And is there, is it different physical? Better. Is there different? Uh, physical evidence like you know how the glaciers supposedly cut out where the great lakes are and everything is it different in that spot than it is the other spots yeah if i get your drift right it's always yeah not only that no 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 you're right you're onto something there the the saginaw bay is so anomalous when you're trying to put together the whole glaciers caused everything yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, Randall Carlson, amongst others, have pushed back against many years. And said, Look, right. Well, I mean, even if it was a glacial dam burst and yeah. that, that carved out, whatever it is, I'm just saying, is it different? But Saginaw always cool. required a special workaround. They call it the Saginaw load. Gotcha. It had two big ice sheets, and then a little one snuck in right between and went and dug out Saginaw Bay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then why <laughs> it cause gravity anomalies that match up like the Rees Crater in South Africa? And you know, no, rises in Germany. Who's yeah. onto the Saginaw thing? Is, is is Randall onto this stuff too, or is this something that you're primarily just dealing with? Or no, it's a guy named Michael Davius. Okay. His website is Centos.org. Okay. C i n t o s, and he has absolutely nothing to do with the Younger Dryas boundary hypothesis. He even claims that the event that he believes calls the bay was seven hundred and eighty thousand some years ago. Okay. It gets complicated. I mean, just like you were saying earlier, even people that are generally on the same team, and he's not even on this team, but maybe we're in the same league or right, whatnot, right. end up disagreeing amongst himself because there's so much mystery out there. So yeah. Davis, Davis is non-credential, but I highly recommend Centos.org to look into the Carolina Bay phenomenon, be it you know caused simultaneously, you know, uh, or not. Um, it's a great field of investigation. So, I mean, basic. What's the takeaway from all this? Like, where are you? Where are you currently at with this whole thing? Are you? Are you as convinced as you were twenty years ago? Are you? 
Um, more convinced, less convinced. Obviously, I know we talked about the Hiawatha. That might play a role in that. But um, hypothetically, let's say they find something that says it's older than the 13,000-year marker or it's yeah. um, different than what you expected. Where do you, where, where do you go from there? You just keep looking for these impact sites and hopefully find the, the smoke and oh, gun? Any kind of information that undermined it or supported us, as long as I, I personally believe it and that, sure, sure. that I respect believe it. So. You know, it's like the Carolina Bays. I am completely comfortable if that doesn't have to do with space, even though it probably personally embarrasses me or people could look at it that way. With the younger dry send out hypothesis, I have even, you know, I just want the truth. And I don't think that a lot of people are looking for the truth. They're trying to defend what they think they know. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you can have negative information come out, yeah. but no, I'm a, never been more optimistic about that thing. You know, after 23 years of involvement with this cold period 13,000 years ago, it is absolutely on the brink. It's even over the brink in some respects. When Science Magazine, when you run a blog called the, it's the, the Cosmic Tusk, and then my tagline is exploring uh, comets and asteroids, <coughs> exploring abrupt climate change induced by comets and asteroids during human history, right? Right. That's my gig. And Science Magazine does a full whip of video, you know, news story that I just want to give you the headline. I should have had it handy if I was going to do it. Oh, the headline, and y'all should go to read this, is, uh, you know, uh, a massive impact crater beneath Greenland could explain Ice Age climate swing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you're right. Back the black climate change induced by comets and asteroids and then science magazine saying it hey man it's been a good year i mean hey. it's a great year now is my son coming home from you know seventh grade uh earth science and saying hey dad they were talking about your theory today they actually mentioned you as being the guy in raleigh who was in on the beginning of the you know great theory that maybe that day will come where there's some kind of explicit wow i was involved right, right, right. hopefully you know, yeah, or maybe even it's not personally, but hopefully other people will get that kind of thing. You know, there'll be some good movies and stuff like that. But it is so satisfying to see it now. As much as, you know, it's like uh, kind of like politics, where as much as you hate the New York Times, if you're a Republican, it's great to have them agree with you. Right. It's in the New York Times where the last <laughs> months, everything the Times said you trashed, you know. But until right. then, so that's kind of our thing with science. You know, you despised them up until the moment. That they capitulated to the evidence and now are running great stories on. So, so I think there's, you know, these things run years. Nothing happens fast in it. You know, literally the distance between our papers can sometimes be two or three years. So you got to give these other guys time to to get up there to Hiawatha. But there's increasing evidence elsewhere. We find, you know, there are researchers around the world finding the black mat and finding uh, catastrophic forensic evidence at 13,000 year old sites around the world, contacting us all the time. But I wanted course, to ask you too about the, uh, that Siberian um, impact. I, I mean, that one's that long ago, I don't think, but it had a weird effect and blew all the trees and had, yeah. So have they ever looked in, I think Siberia is huge too. Is there ever been any look over there as well? Cause I feel like there could be a lot of stuff hiding under there over there. Yeah, but that's not the interesting part about the Tunguska impact. Yeah, there certainly could be impact evidence in Siberia. Certainly all the mammoth died, so something happened to them. Right. Right. And Hiawatha wouldn't be the only impact crater either. Necessarily, <coughs> our <coughs> theory is 
and the Hiawatha team at this point doesn't agree exactly with this. They say it was a single iron asteroid that came slamming into, you know, a lot of reasons that's probably wrong. But you think it's like the torrid bringing yeah, multiple good. objects. And that thing's disintegrating, and you may have hit a cross-section of that stream where you could have had multiple blunt impacts over a period of a day or two. So they could be anywhere around the globe. Right. Uh, to some extent. And so uh, what would something like Tunguska, what's the relevance there? Well, one is that you can have tremendous, tremendous effects. Is it enough? You know, we needed Hiawatha. At one point, we were interested in, or the lead authors were interested in, we had to reserve the, the possibility that all of this was atmospheric impacts, that you hit a swarm of 50-meter boulders that all blow up like Tunguska and you got 5,000 of them. Will that change the climate? Sure. Maybe. And are you going to see any craters? Absolutely not, because Tunguska didn't leave a crater to speak of. So that was always on the table. But you figure, nah, it's probably not going to be all gnats. There will be some gnats, some bumblebees in there, you know, some flies and different size, you know, that swarm. Could an explosion like that, though, could it spray yeah. these micro spherics and diamonds and all that stuff? Or would an impact need to happen to, for that to occur? Both are possible. Okay. You both get vaporized impact or material when it blows up in the atmosphere like Tunguska, they found spherules there. Okay. Also, when there is a truly energetic, gigantic monster impact that slams into the earth and melt, melts the crust, right? It shoots up stuff that also vaporizes. Gotcha. And you can't always tell whether the spherules you're studying are generally a mixture of them with a hell of a lot more earth in it than remnants of the thing. But there's enough remnants of the thing to have those spherules test extraordinarily high in um, elements like platinum, which is our signature thing. The big paper in 2015 that got in Nature, the other big journal. We'd never been in Nature. It, this one made it in Nature. So yeah. that was us. That wasn't just the Dane. That's awesome. Dane's got the, the related yeah. science into science. But in 2015, we were doing Snoopy dances, you know, or I was. Hmm for getting it into nature. And that was discovery of a widespread platinum anomaly at 13,000 years ago, right? So I am preparing to answer your question. I am preparing to dance joyfully on their grave for the rest of my years. I'm only 52. I probably got a good 30 years of absolute just dancing on their grave, calling out the idiots, making sure they're held account for their foolishness, which is going to be a lot of fun you know, over being wrong about this. And I think that's going to be clear within, you know, a period, a very, very short period. That's awesome. I mean, hopefully, you know, yeah. something big soon comes out and at least. Yeah, hopefully you don't go missing soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I hope not. Well, I'm going to get on to see that football game. Right All right. Well, yeah, we're going to let you go. So everybody can check out the end of the Super Bowl here, but thanks for coming on. Yeah, we'll, great, uh, man. we're going to get you, uh, we're going to get you back on soon. Check out, uh, his uh, website, thecosmictusk.com. We're going to put it under our information. And uh, it was a pleasure, George. And on Twitter, too, doing a lot of stuff on Twitter. Cosmic Twitter at Cosmic or at Cosmic uh, Tusk on Twitter, too. And another uh, great portal for related information um, that is more editorial from the entire group is the Comet Research Group website. Comet Research Group. We got three, 4,000 friends there now. We post frequently on it and keep people up with, with things to do with the, the Younger Dross research. And that's cosmicresearchgroup.org? Comet Research Group on okay. Facebook. 
And how many, you had six, 60 something scientists now, I believe? Yeah, it depends on how you count them. If you added up everybody on a paper, it'd be in the 70s, probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. You, you don't know who to, you know, there are a lot that you don't want to say are a part of the team because then they would be independent, right? Right, right, right. So what happens when someone discovers something that supports us? Are they now one of our team, you know? You know. Yeah. A little hard to, to parse. You got to figure out who's going to be top three for the. Uh, the we got seventy people that have published evidence in support of this. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. this was awesome. Lots of information. Lots of good stuff. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Everybody, check out the end of the yeah, Super Bowl, you. and thanks for watching. Peace. Cheers. Thanks a lot.